Thanks for listening to the Just Salvos podcast. Get connected with us through our website, justsalvos.com and our various social media accounts. Search for Just Salvos. The aim of our podcast is to engage Salvos in meaningful and respectful discussion regarding controversial or hot topics. The views or comments of those participating in the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the Salvation Army. This podcast was recorded on the land for which the Wondery people of the Kulin Nation are the traditional owners and custodians. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome to Just Salvo's first uh, podcast. With me today to discuss, does God have a gender? I have Adam Couchman. Hi, Adam. Hi. Adam is a lecturer at Eva Burroughs College. Correct. And Associate Corps Officer at Box Hill. That's right. Yes. And I have Jenny Beagent. Hi. Jenny Beagent is the National Head of Social Mission. And I have Sandra Croden, who is the Social Justice Secretary, the Indigenous Ministries Consultant, and the Associate Mission Resources Secretary. Assistant, but, you know. Close enough. Close enough. <laughs> uh, and I'm Amanda and I work with Just Salvos. So, a few months ago, uh, we wrote an article entitled Nine Ways Your Faith Community Can Embrace Gender Equality. And we provided a list of suggestions that faith communities can do. Uh, and number five suggested that people consider removing a gendered pronoun, so calling God a he or a she, when referring to God. And it attracted a lot of attention, a lot more than I was anticipating. Facebook suddenly blew up and I was like, oh my gosh, what's happening? What have I done? What have I done? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It was actually a really insightful conversation around what people thought when it came to does God have a gender? So is God a man? Is God a woman? And what that means. So we decided to engage uh, in that topic a bit further, which is why we're doing this podcast today. So I'm wondering, I'd love to hear from all of you, when I approached you, why did you say yes to uh, participating in a podcast discussing the gender of God? Well, I said yes because I've always um, always had a fairly strong feminist leaning um, actually not a leaning, I run and jump into feminism quite strongly. (laughs) Um, And I thought it's an issue for the Salvation Army in that we've always accepted the idea that there is gender equality. Um, But I think that's a myth. And so um, any opportunity I can get to talk into that space, I take. I said yes for so many reasons, Amanda. Not the least that when I ask you to do something, you might say yes in return. But the truth is that the thing that motivates me most of all is that when I look at the generations to come, I I don't want for there to be barriers for women um, because of language that we use. And I can see how language can be really powerful and how it can actually impact the practices of people. And so I want us to be able to have robust conversations so that we can um, demonstrate how we can work through some of those barriers in an effective but uh, a, a kind way. For me, uh, the opportunity to discuss our theology is always a, a fun thing for yeah. me um, and an opportunity to learn. Um, I come in um, to this space um, uh, acknowledging that I don't know a lot about this in particular. I have, you know, I dived into some reading over the last few days to yeah. kind of prepare myself, mm. but uh, I come into this space wanting to learn what, a bit more through this conversation, what are the implications of firstly using 
uh, gendered language for God mm-hmm. or secondly, not using gendered language yeah. for God. What what there's implications either way. Yeah. So I'm, I'm here to just learn a bit more. Nice. And I'm hoping that we will all learn from this experience mm. as well. Like the aim of this podcast is not to have everyone on the same page at the end of it, but to have an opportunity to engage in quite a heated topic for many people um, and learn from each other in that process. All right. So let's jump into it. Why is it important to discuss the gender of God? Look, I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, first thing just suggests that God doesn't have a gender. Um, if fundamentally, God is wholly other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly, completely different to us. Um, and, you know, Karl Barth referred to the infinite qualitative distinction between God and creation. There is something completely different about God. Um, and so uh, at the outset, uh, we need to acknowledge that the difference of God includes uh, gender, um, and the language that we use to describe God fundamentally at its very base level is going to be flawed. Um, but that's all we've got. We've only got human language available to us. We can't use anything else. It may sound obvious, um, but uh, we do our best with what we've got to describe the divine, which is completely wholly other to us. I think for me it's important because people perhaps unwittingly assign gender to God. And when we assign gender, then we also allow our opinions, understandings and values around that gender to come into play. And so I think by not having the conversation, we're not going to challenge some of that thinking, some of that language, some of those values. And also language is powerful. So when I hear of God constantly referred to in one gender, then that has implications as well. So it's not that I believe that God has gender, it's that I believe that language sometimes can cause a a stumbling block for people. And if we're not sure if it's important to talk about whether or not God has gender, we just have to bring up the topic and and see the passion that it arises in people. And then you realise, oh no, I think this is an important topic because people get very engaged in it. So I I think if it wasn't important, uh, it would be a non-issue. Yes, I dearly wish that it wasn't important. Uh, It will be great for us not to have to discuss the gender of God. Uh, But I think we do have to, and for the reasons Sandy said, the language is so important. But also I think there's been um, centuries of exclusion around that. Um, So when we ascribe quite naturally God as he um, in our hymnody, in our Bible studies, in our theology, then there is a sense of excluding an entire gender from um, what God is and who God is uh, I think Adam's completely right. God is so far beyond our own understanding that gender's probably not a large part of who God is in that respect. Um, but for us in this kind of dimension, being able to be inclusive means we need to really um, discuss and debate the nature of God and who, whether we ascribe a, a gender to him or not. Yeah. I also think you know, we talk about God as a personal God. And so when we do that, then 
you know, when you relate to a person, you relate to a person in an image that you have manufactured if you don't know them uh, or if you are not able to see them. And I think sometimes it's really helpful to be able to do that. And I would want people to be able to do that if if it's helpful for people to, to think of God in a certain way in order to enter a relationship. I want them to have the freedom to do that, but I don't want it to be at the exclusion of other people being able to do that. So I don't, I don't think we can get away from that. I mean, I didn't grow up in the church, but I certainly had an image of what God, if there was a God, was like from what I'd heard. And and so I think it's actually addressing and redressing that is is why it becomes important. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, I think the notion of loving father, for instance, for um, both males and females who've been abused by supposed loving fathers causes all kinds of problems around how you might relate to a specific gender in God. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, perhaps to take a step back, we've jumped right in and we've asked, um, you know, why is it important to talk about the the gender of God? But what do me what do we mean when we say gender? I think this is a, a space that's a little confusing for people at the moment. I think that people used to have very clear understanding of what they meant by gender and, and we see it all the time, you know, oh, you had a girl or you had a boy and... Um, you know, it's it's very clear that you are either male or female. And yet recent studies and research has shown us that gender is much more complicated than that. And I think that that's added to some of the confusion. So our understanding of gender has grown and developed as our ability to understand has grown and developed. And I think that that means that there's new conversations that have to be had. And I think that's important. I'd, I'd be honest and say this is an area that I'm really learning in. Yeah. Uh, having grown up with a binary view of gender, you tick a box on a, you're filling out a form, male or female, and, uh, you know, more recently a third category has been added, uh, either I don't want to disclose or, uh, or other. Um, and it is an unusual space to now be in in society with, um, uh, with the studies that are showing that, uh, gender is different to the binary categories than what we've, than, you know, I've grown up in. So this is something I'm just kind of watching and learning from, and um, the implications back to God um, and our understanding of God are important. I think, um, and I think though that the idea of God being holy other can actually help us inform that and understand. What does it mean to be in the image of God? And does um, a gender differentiation in humanity or not, um, does that have implications on our theology? I think it's much more fluid than it was. I think, you know, uh, like Adam, when I was growing up, it was either male or female. Um, uh, 30 years in social services has meant that I've had a challenging way of managing gender for particularly for some of our clients, uh, it is much more fluid today. And I think that's a good thing. I think it helps in the discussions around God to have gender as something that can be um, ascribed one way or the other, um, can be generalised, but can also be specific to a particular person. So I think it's really important that we keep the debate going to include 
a range of views and a range of options for people. Yeah, great. I think too, when we assign gender, we're not just talking about my anatomy or my parts, you mm. know. So when mm. someone says to me, you're female, there's a whole package that goes along with that. Um, a whole assumption about how I should behave and what's appropriate for me to behave and where I'm allowed to be and what I'm allowed to do and characteristics that I'm supposed to have. And so it, it goes beyond just neatly categorizing people so that we know what to call them uh, to the very existence of that person and how we expect them to be. And so when we do that with God, then that implies that to be like God by extension means to have those characteristics that we assign to whichever gender we're talking about at the time. Yeah. Um, so... Language around gender is really important. Um, and as we've all said, how we understand gender is changing um, and it's changing a lot in our language as well. Um, so how does language, how does either the changing language of gender or just language in general, how we refer to God, how does that impact our worldview? Um, and how does that impact our relationship with God and, and our relationship with community? Well, I think too, if we make God male, then male, then being male is normal. And therefore being anything other than male is not normal or lesser somehow. Uh, if, if the aim of my life is to become more like the deity, then that's a barrier. Um, but also it, it talks about things like how I am treated because of the gender that society assigns to me. So, you know, we all, we've all heard phrases like run like a girl or cry like a girl. or um, And there's a sense in which I am belittled or put down or trivialized in some way because of assigning gender. And I think reinforcing a gender for God that is other to me then reinforces my place in the order. So I think it's a very significant thing. We've been often brought up to believe that somehow being female is lesser. And I think that our language around God has, if not caused that, certainly helped perpetuate that and certainly been used to remind me of the limitations of my gender. Yeah, I think language either includes or excludes. And I agree with Sandy that language that refers to God uh, in one particular gender is going to at some point naturally exclude others. Um, when Sandy used some of those phrases like run like a girl, I thought of that phrase, big girl's blouse, which really annoys me so much. I'm like, you know, I used to be a big girl and boy, have I got a blouse to wear. <laughs> um, but language, in the way in which we use language um, within ourselves and within the community can either bring us together or it can push us apart. And so I think thinking of God in terms of a, a much more robust or um, holistic way to include both genders is important and and it then brings about some inclusion so that we all feel part of this, you know, amazing response to God. Yeah, look, it's language has incredible power um, in our relationships, in, um, in church, the language that we choose to use, um, whether that's addressing people, and we've heard some examples of... Um, off the cuff, perhaps kind of insults 
using women in derogatory terms and rightly so, we should be calling those out. Um, I, I am actually a runner and some, there's some girls that I wish I could run like, honestly, because <laughs> I'm, I'm very slow um, and that's quite okay. Um, but, you know, with just within that example, I, um, I have challenged male runners who talk about being chicked, which is being beaten by a girl. And I'd say, well, what do you mean by that? And why is that okay? Um, we need to actually think through the implications of using such language. And um, even more important than are the implications of the language we use to describe God, that does impact um, uh, the way churches, churches are structured, the way um, power is assigned, um, who is uh, the leader in a congregation. And the Salvation Army, we, you know, we take some pride in the fact that male and female officers are uh, appointed as core officers, but there are a lot of this, uh, locations where that um, even the perceived equality isn't even there. Um, moving further up what we might call the ladder, there is a clear distinction um, in those um, power structures based upon gender. Um, our orders and regulations use the language of he, uh, when speaking of officers, uh, core officers or officers alike, um, in appointments and what they're supposed to be doing. Um, it, it is problematic um, because half of our officers' workforce uh, aren't he's <laughs> and it doesn't acknowledge that and it needs to be called out and addressed. Um, so it's it's incredibly powerful and incredibly important that we we do our best to use appropriate language. Yeah, language in language informs basically. Mm. It informs mm. how we live and how we engage with the world. Mm. Um, the next question is uh, one that I've wrestled with in particular. How do we consider the context of scripture in this discussion? So. If God doesn't have a gender, which is what people have suggested, then why does the Bible refer to God as he? Why is there a prayer that says our father who art in heaven? Um, how do we wrestle with what scripture says about the gender of God? And are we dishonoring scripture if we suggest that it might be otherwise? Um, this is one I wrestle with a lot. Um, this is, you know, where I, the space I sit in uh, frequently and over you know, recent days having been invited into this conversation, this is what I've been wrestling with a lot, um, this particular question. Um, I think firstly uh, we need to recognise uh, the human aspect of Scripture, the, the human authorship of Scripture and it is born out of um, a male-dominated um, societies, multiple societies across a, a, a large range of time. Um, you know, Caesars were all male. Um, and you think New Testament time, Roman um, uh, Empire time, the, the normative leadership structures were male. Um, Pharisees, Sadducees, all male. Um, so the context of the authors themselves, the human authors, was all male. And so it was normative. Um, and in a day like ours, when we are um, questioning the use of that language, I, I think it's okay for us to acknowledge that uh, at least. 
Um, at the same time, we do have um, feminine language used for, for God and attributes of God. I mean, an example that comes to mind is Jesus in Matthew 23 uh, crying over Jerusalem and using the metaphor of oh, how I wish I could be like a hen gathering the chicks. Um, that's a, it's a feminine metaphor. Um, or in uh, the time when the early church was debating the divinity and humanity of Christ and how that fitted together, um, they reached for Proverbs 8.22 in particular. This is uh, an agreed upon text in the sense that they saw that it related to Christ, um, but how it then explained the relationship between his two natures was not agreed upon. But in that, it's, it's referring to Christ as the wisdom of God, uh, which is a feminine term. Sophia is the Greek um, in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Um, and that was just assumed that that was referring to, to the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, uh, as Sophia. Um, so scripture, even though we have these prayers and what they provide us in terms of the language of Father or Abba is a very personal way to address God. Um, but that's the level we should try and keep it at is that personal relationship. If, if I could find a way to keep that personal relationship without it being gendered, I'd love to learn a term like that. Um, at the moment, father, mother um, or something like that works well, but it is so limited and so problematic. So... I think what? it's possible, though. Yeah. yeah. I, I'd love to, I, I often I'd love think to of when people are expecting a baby before they know the gender, they still speak of that baby in affectionate terms. They still talk to that baby. I think I think it's about practising, isn't it? Mm. Practising new language and new ways. I mean, I would love to see a whole range of ways of relating to God from an Australian context. And I think that there's lots of work that can be done there. Um, yeah, that's just throwing that in there. I think that scripture is undoubtedly inspired by God and we believe that wholly, but we also understand that it is a story of a specific people at a specific time in a specific context. And by necessity, it used language that was useful for them. Uh, by necessity, it used language of the day that people could use to relate to something that is so beyond our ability to understand. And so the context of the day was used and, and therefore it was thoroughly appropriate that that God would be referred to as male. It was thoroughly appropriate for Jesus as a Jewish man to use male terms in referring to God. And I don't think that that's something that we should even worry about disputing. I mean, you know, people could pull scripture verses out and say, oh, well, you know, um, Ruach is definitely feminine and therefore matriarchal. And then someone else could say, oh, well, you know, the gender is, isn't the same when you're talking about a person as when you're talking about a term. And, you know, I've heard all of the arguments and debates. And, and to be honest, I'm not even sure that that matters. It's about, well, what are the implications? Is If I can still relate to God and refer to God in a way that is more inclusive, in my public relating to God in particular I'm talking about, then, then why would I not? You know, why would I not do that? And why would I not consider the context of the times that I live in so that no one misses out 
in engagement with God. Why would I not do that? So for me, it's a bit of an it's a bit of a non-argument because I can hear scholars on either side arguing it out till, you know, God willing, Jesus comes back again and says, "Shut up," you know. So I I, I think it's important that we acknowledge it, but I, I don't think that that's where we should get stuck. Yeah, I I agree. I don't think it's worth getting hung up on. And I think there are lots of instances throughout Scripture where the feminine pronouns for God are really clear, such as wisdom and Sophia and um, spirit as well, Ruek. You know, those kind of phrases, but also the chicken and the wings kind of thing. Um, They're all aspects that are feminine I think, too, it's important to remember the context, which both Sandy and Adam have alluded to, and and in a context where women were subservient anyway and were really owned in an Israelite context. They were owned by the father or the husband or a bit like the cattle and the sheep and the goats. So it's a natural understanding for them to work in. It's foreign to us today and for some people clearly abhorrent. But I think if you're serious about how you include both genders, then you will, the scriptures are there to support that inclusiveness and that ability to, um, I guess, show examples of God's much broader definition than being assigned a single gender. Recently, I was preparing a presentation for someone within the organisation and um, the word to me was, we want gulp but not gag. And it's a wonderful um, image that comes into my mind about when when I'm trying to present new material or new ideas or persuade someone of something, um, I don't want them to, for it to be so foreign or so difficult that they are just unable to respond. And I actually think that scripture has plenty of gulp factor. It really is. It's quite it's quite astonishing just how far the boundaries were pushed, but we have to acknowledge that if you go too far, then no one will be able to hear the message of the gospel. I think that's a a great way of describing that gulp versus gag. I like that. Um, And acknowledging the human authorship allows us to actually stop and see just how much of a gulp factor there is in Scripture at times. Um, You know, the the story that comes to mind is how Luke, in, in his account of the gospel, from 23 into 24, chapter 23 into 24, the women follow Jesus the whole way. Um, now, he he's very well crafted in the way he writes this because he holds back their names until 24, but they're there. And then you have men appearing, coming and going, Simon of Cyrene, the, uh, the thief on the cross, the, the soldier at the cross, uh, Joseph of Arimathea at the tomb. But the women are there the whole time. And then you get to Sunday and they're named. Um, and then into Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus says to them, how foolish you are. I actually think he's saying that because they didn't believe the message because it came from these women. Um, I think there's something very powerful in the way that's written that elevates the place of women on the, you know, the critical moment in in our faith, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. They are the witnesses, um, the first evangelists. Um, and so to, to then have an issue with what pronoun we might use for God um, or... Um, or to name God as father or mother or, or something else. I think if we can see 
in Scripture and particularly in those the way Jesus ministered to women and with women um, and elevated their position in a society that was incredibly patriarchal, um, to, to worry about the language that we use for God actually contradicts that. Um, so the way we read Scripture is really, really important and acknowledging the fact that it was a patriarchal a patriarchal society when written is is not going to trouble us too much. I think that Jesus was about human flourishing mm. and anything that would prevent that, I think, would make him pretty cranky, to be honest. And I, I love the fact that arguably in Scripture, not only did Jesus include and embrace women, but was willing to learn from them, was willing to be schooled by them. Mm. And so women would often be the ones that would appear to cause Jesus to stop and rethink the society and context that even he had been brought up in. That's incredibly radical. Um, But for me, overall, it really is about, I see Jesus as someone who came that we would flourish. And if language is used and our understanding of God is used in such a way that half of the population don't flourish, then that's something that we should be very concerned about. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. The um, the context of the original post of Just Salvos um, was that it was done in the lead up to the International Day of the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Um, and so from our perspective, we understand that violent take, violence takes place on a continuum. At one end is um, death or serious injury of women. And on the other end is gender inequality, which is why I love this conversation we've just had about actually um, bringing a feminist lens when we read scripture and looking at how Jesus was inclusive of all people, particularly women who in that culture were not necessarily given the same respect. Um, So that's a really great conversation to have. You can move that into Paul too, who's much maligned often for being someone who disliked women. But when Sandy was talking about Jesus willing to be schooled by women. I'm reminded of how much Paul um, praised and considered Lois and Eunice, who were Timothy's mother and grandmother. Um, and there were, I think if you read the scriptures in the way that you get an impression that Paul was incredibly impressed by these two women who had actually delivered this holy functioning child his father was a Greek, so, you know, in terms of a Christian response that had come wholly and solely from Lois and Eunice and had delivered this child to Paul who turned out to be loyal, trustworthy, God-fearing man. And Paul's really clear about the impact Lois and Eunice had and I think was probably willing to be impacted himself by them. Uh, yeah, I think we just forget sometimes just how controversial it is that that women are named in the genealogy, that that women play such a significant role at a time when that was just not allowed. And I think because we cannot help but read scripture through our own lens, we sometimes miss just how incredibly controversial it was. I think it pushed the gulp just as far as the gulp could have gone. And I, th- I think because of my own context, I forget that even as a woman. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul's letter to the Romans was funded and interpreted by Phoebe in its first reading. Um, chapter 16 at the start of it, at the start of a big list, which includes a lot of women that he's uh, giving thanks for. If you think of someone who's missing friends and to include a, a whole range of women, but at the start of that list is Phoebe, um, who 
funded and probably interpreted the text for the first audience. She was the first commentator on Romans. If you go to any theological library, there are more commentaries on Romans than perhaps any other book. It started with Phoebe. And where did she get the money in a society Mm. like that? I mean, it's quite astonishing. Mm. Perhaps uh, moving from, what was it, it, Sandy? Gasp into gulp? Other way around? (laughs) No, gulp into Into gag. 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 (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'll tell you later who said that to me. It'll make you laugh. Uh, What does the Salvation Army tradition have to say about the gender of God? I'm not sure that we say an awful lot about the gender of God. I think it's implied by our practice, though. Uh, You know, and we've briefly mentioned that before, but certainly we know from the beginning of times in in the Salvation Army, there was a sense that women were treated differently within our denomination. There was a sense in which there was more inclusion. And I I believe William Booth is famously remembered as saying, some of my best men are women, uh, which in the language of the day was quite an out there kind of statement. So I think the intention was from the earliest days that we would actually break down some of those barriers. Not, it wasn't so much in the language we used about God, but in our practices. And we can go on to talk about what has happened since then, but uh, we would certainly argue that there would be no Salvation Army had it not been for Catherine and had it not been for many of the women that were there. So I think historically our practice has indicated uh, some equality for women that they might not have found elsewhere. But nonetheless, the language of the day was used and that language can be perpetuated uh, to lead to some of the situations that we've seen since. Yes, I, I agree. The language that we use is still today wholly and predominantly masculine, even when we write hymns and we put um, and we put Bible studies together or we write theological treatises, we still default to that kind of masculine um, language that's used not just to describe God but to describe the movement as well. Um, and so I, I think those... Those terms and phrases have have embedded within us a sense in which women are still secondary. It's interesting that um, up until the 1940s, inscribed in the orders and regulations, there was really clear understanding that women would have equal roles and equal power. And after the 1940s, that's missing from the ORs and has never showed up since. Um, and I think that's probably a society approach because after the Second World War, there was a move towards a more liberal kind of view of the world. And at times like that, the church usually contracts, <laughs> becomes more conservative. Um, and women also, by and large, prior to the end of the Second World War, had participated in some pretty groundbreaking they ran the country basically while the men were away at war. But when they, the men came back, they stepped down into secondary positions. And I think we've kind of maintained that mm. and remained in secondary roles. And we've the other thing we've done, I think, in the Salvation Army, I, I think one of our strengths is our dual ministry. I think that has real power to have two people called to serve God together as a unit. But what it's done is pushed women into the default and it is rare for 
a married woman to hold a position higher than her husband's. And we've created positions that are default roles for women, like women's ministry secretaries and, you know, um, those kind of roles that women just slot into because we've got to do something with the woman. There are times when um, I go to a feminist conference and I sit, you know, and listen to particularly a church or Christian feminist conference and I'm um, often come away a bit surprised and telling myself, boy, we've come a long way. We are far better off than other churches are, um, but we should be much better off. You know, it shouldn't be still be a, a struggle. It should be a given, given our history. So how do you think we can change some of that masculine language and how do we do that in a way that then doesn't exclude men, I guess? I think Adam alluded to it earlier. I think we have to talk, I think we have to have honest conversations about what will be lost for people. You know, when there's a risk of losing power, people get upset. And I, I think people are afraid too. If I start to reimagine God and that God might be bigger or different to how I've imagined, what will that do to my faith and how will I hold everything together? So I think we need to create space for people to be able to talk about their fears in a safe and honest way mm. um, without there being that loss of power that goes on with people. I think it's so easy to come in and hit people over the head with how how we've just lived our lives you know we don't we don't often think about a context until someone challenges that and so i think allowing people that space to think it through is really important and and reassuring them that god's probably able to cope with questions about faith and gender and things like that um i often wonder how the army would have been different if catherine had have outlived william um, she died in 1890, some 22 years before William, and William um, led the army on his own at, uh, in terms of his um, marriage relationship um, for those 22 years until he died and then and Bramwell then, of course, became general. I often wonder what would have been different? Uh, what, would, what would we have gained? What Would Catherine have taken over as general? Um, or would Bramwell have immediately taken over as general and Catherine have uh, influenced and, and, you know, been alongside Bramwell in that situation? I, we don't know. It's a hypothetical. Um, but I, I think it's it's worth considering what, what would we have looked like if she had to continue that very strong influence that she had over the early leadership uh, in terms of, um, uh, well, feminist theology, you know, in its one of its earliest forms. Um, and she was a, a great thinker um, for the army. I often, uh, I've suggested before that the High Council, which is meeting again this year, should actually go back and retrospectively make Catherine a general. And then retrospectively, every wife of every general from then on. Because um, we've always asked this question, well, when will we have a first married woman general? Why not make him? all generals, change the rules. I'm sure there's legal implications. <laughs> now, it might just be a bit of tokenism, um, but at the same time, I think something dramatic like that, that does recognise we have this parking garage for married women, um, you know, called women's ministries that goes from the very top down. Um, and now I've said parking garage, I probably should... <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a good be a little bit more respectful to those that have found fulfillment in that role. But the fact that they're just put there automatically doesn't recognize that they're meant for that. Does, does that make some sense? Yes. I got myself out of my hole. <laughs> um, something dramatic, though, some sort of significant international change that says we recognize that we've done something wrong uh, or that our structures are actually. Um, uh, predominantly patriarchal, which they are, uh, we need to make a dramatic change and let's do it. Um, I'd love to see something like that. I, I don't think it will, but, you know, you never know. I'd like to see the church leading the way in that. I, I, I'm now a mother and a grandmother and I like to read stories to my grandchildren and you go out and you try and find books written by women. It, it's, it's difficult now. There's some great authors that are challenging that at the moment, but um, also the messages that my granddaughter gets about what it is to be a girl and so challenging some of those stereotypes for her and helping her to believe that she can dream about what she grows up to be in the same way as my grandson, that there aren't barriers to her being, uh, being female is not somehow a barrier to the flourishing that I spoke about before. And I guess that's why I'm passionate about the language that we use for God or for um, wholeness or, or for just becoming all that we can be, because I think that I mean, there's plenty of studies that prove that um, males and females respond differently as they're growing up, depending on the messages that they receive. And I think we have to change the message. And I think that the church has a wonderful opportunity to change the message that is given to women, to to who they can become and who they are in God's eyes. And, and I'd love to see us leading the way, and I think it can be done. Uh, I believe that we've got a generation coming through that will not be held back by the things that have held even my own generation back. I was just I was um, thinking about what um, Adam had said in relation to Catherine leading um, because when you look at the photograph of the first High Council, there are very few women in that particular photograph. So in that 22 years, women had contracted almost, um, you know, quite significantly. So when we talk about, you know, having a uh, gender equity approach to leadership and to vocation, we're actually still battling over 90 years of not being in those roles. And I, I think language is really important in the way we approach that. And when I think about Oswan and the opportunity to write a whole new way of you know, living out the gospel in a way that's both inclusive and um, and not gender-specific in any way. Um, I, I just don't want us to lose that opportunity. I'm a bit like Sandy. I want us to grasp it and go, you know, we could actually change the way the church actually does anything moving forward. Um, yeah. Imagine the implications of that. I, I think we've yet to see the profound implications of actually allowing allowing women to have equal say and equal space at the table. I wonder how that would impact the church and then society. And I'd love to see us being even bolder than we currently are and experimenting with that. And the language we use for God, come all the way back to the comment Sandy said at the start where if we use masculine language for God, then that becomes normative. Um, and so power um, 
by default invests in men. Um, and that's the situation we're in. If we perpetuate that, then um, we, we have... Uh, it's a much harder to to change these systemic problems that we have going on. If if we're not prepared to change something, then nothing changes. Um, and it it will require men to uh, lose power. We have to acknowledge that and be, can I say, man enough to <laughs> accept that. Brave enough. <laughs> brave enough. Let's go with brave enough. Woman enough. Woman. <laughs> yeah. Well, because we actually do know what it is to hand over power, to yeah. hand, to create space that's for a good others. Way of saying it. Yep. We create space for others in our very bodies and in our lives. That's that's what we do. And I, so I think it gives us an advantage because mm-hmm. um, our biology forces us to be space creators. And and I'd love to see men have that right to to learn to be space creators, rather than think about it in terms of losing power. Mm, that's a that's a great way of of putting Thank it. You. I like that. Yeah, that's really good. I, I want to say too, and I don't know if we'll get an opportunity to say that, that I don't think there's anything wrong with people um, in their own personal relationship with God relating to God in a way that's helpful for them. I think it has to be said. I think people think I, what I'm suggesting is that you all have to remove all language for God that is comforting to you. I just think in public space, in in when we are leading other people who, who may have a story that we do know or don't know, uh, you know, we we can just actually be considerate in mm. the language that we use. I think we do that anyway. I mean, there's language I use in some places that I don't use in others. I, th- I think that we can do that. And I think it's just another extension of that. So it's, if, if someone finds that relating to God as Father is helpful for them, I wouldn't want them to stop that um, any more than if someone finds relating to God as Mother is helpful to them. I'm just suggesting that those of us in the public space need to be aware of that in our leadership. And we need to be aware of that in all of the language that we use um, as far as challenging people and encouraging people in their development. It's learning to be conscious about your words and what those what impact those words have, particularly in public space, so that, you know, everybody can come to the table with a kind of comfort that this is for them as much as it's for the person sitting next to them. And, and to take that even further, um, we can consider how gender impacts our language and how we understand God, but even our culture and our ethnicities. I'm very aware that everyone around the table, as far as I'm aware, uh, are Anglo-Saxon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are the other voices that we might be missing in understanding who God is around um, other facets of of culture and um, and race and and other elements where power is really inherent as well. Mm. And and being respectful in that. So you know, I often walk work across cultures, and I understand that. Um, when I when I speak across culture, I have to be contextual and I have to understand where the people are. And, and I often say to people, you know, I would do whatever I needed to do to help the gospel to be heard. And, I, and I'm able to adapt that in whatever cultural context I'm in because the gospel is more important than my idea of what language we should use around God. So I, I do think that we have to acknowledge that, that there would be some people that might listen to this for whom their context is very different to mine and I would want to adapt accordingly. But that doesn't let me off the hook either. Mm. So this has been quite a, a great conversation um, and lots of different ideas have been thrown around. Uh, so I want to ask you, 
how then do we live? So having participated in this conversation, um, thinking about the different ideas and the different themes that have, have come through, how then do we live? And I've got a couple of different, um, I guess, sections that we can respond to. So how do we live as people engaged in mission um, for working alongside people on a grassroots level? Well, I think that we remember that the gospel is supposed to be good news for them. And so anything that would be a barrier to them hearing that good news, um, for me, it's about trying to find out what that might be and trying to eliminate it. Um, That's not watering down my beliefs in any way, shape or form, but actually being contextually, culturally relevant for the people that I'm talking to. Yeah, I would agree. And I think there are instances where we've done that in the past. And and even in some of the great Christian traditions, we've incorporated pagan rituals into what's become now a normal Christian tradition. And I think being able, as Sandy says, to contextualise where people are at and to use some of that cultural context to explain the gospel can be a really powerful way of... um, lifting up the gospel rather than watering it down. I think for, for me, I'm mean, having two appointments at the moment, one at a core and one as a lecturer, um, the, the, the language we use is really important. Um, at the core level, looking in the room and seeing who's there. This is something I teach my worship students all the time. Who's in the room? Construct worship based upon who is actually in the room. Um, and make it appropriate for them and help them to engage with God in that space. Uh, In terms of being a lecturer in theology, this is even more important for me. And in strategy that I've tried to employ is trying to at least get students to engage with one female author at least in essays. That's just one very basic starting point. Um, I'd like them to to see more, but having that as a, you know, an upfront expectation in their written work, uh, that they would try and engage with women authors at least, uh, and, and even broader than that, uh, authors from different cultural backgrounds, um, because it's very easy to go for the white males, very easy in theology um, and uh, other studies to, to just go for the white males and not even realise it. Um, and we just perpetuate the problem. And I think modelling it too. I I remember the year that I decided I wouldn't use gender for God when I was in public worship. And I remember how hard it was to retrain myself not to do that. Interestingly, I don't believe the congregation noticed at all. Uh, And I thought that was a great thing, actually, because it wasn't uncomfortable. It wasn't, I wasn't pushing something. I was just recognising that my language was powerful and that I could modify. And it took me a full 12 months to do it. And then because I'm not speaking publicly regularly, I sometimes find myself tripping up and and it's so easy to fall back into those pronouns. But actually modelling that we can talk about God in creative, wonderful, nurturing, all-encompassing ways without assigning gender to God so that when people say, oh, I don't think I could do it, you can say, well, how do I talk about God? Great. And what questions can we continue to ask ourselves that help us to reflect on this issue going forward? How do we continue to remain in a space that considers the gender of God and what that means for us? I'd like to suggest, can we ask ourselves if we can continue to be honest with ourselves and just recognise 
um, that even if we didn't intend it, the language we've used and perhaps continue to use in, in many circumstances does cause problems. Um, and we need to work to uh, either eliminate the cause of the problem or deal with the problems that are caused by our language if, if we can't change that. So just acknowledging that um, even if we didn't have the intent of causing pain, we have done. Um, that's just being honest with ourselves, I think, is a starting point. And then can we listen? <laughs> can we listen to the other voices in the room um, before speaking? It's giving space for voices to speak that are not the norm, I guess, is one of the things I think is really important. I, I've recently got myself into the strategy space and, and been particularly around Oswan, um, had started to have some input into the way the strategy is being put together. Uh, and a couple of times I felt myself getting quite cross because we're still, we're reverting to patriarchal frameworks all the time. Uh, but having said that, it is so difficult to shift myself out of that patriarchal framework and go, hang on a minute. The other side of that, though, is to make sure you're not constantly the squeaky voice who's forever reminding them of gender. But I think if we don't remind them, not just about gender, but of cultural diversity in general and that there are other voices to be heard and other voices missing at the table. I'm reminded constantly that women are not the only ones missing at the table. The Indigenous are missing at the table. Mm. Refugees are missing at the table. People from other um, religious persuasions are missing from the table. And so it's a fine balance between trying to move people to think outside what is a normal framework for us and and um, try not to be the abrasive voice that people write off, I guess, because they're constantly hearing it. Yep. And it's just a constant struggle. I mean, I see the irony that an organisation would appoint me to a role that requires that I challenge injustice but then find it very uncomfortable when I, in when fact, do. do the role of challenging injustice. I, I see that the role is a prophetic role and that I have to be brave enough to do that anyway. I have to be brave enough to be marginalised with the marginalised yes. and to be considered the squeaky wheel. And there are, I mean, there are so many issues. And I'll continue to say um, throughout the Australia One process, if we do not get the voices of the minorities to the table, then this is a waste of time. We will just recreate a Ourselves. We can't help it. I cannot help but respond out of my context. And therefore, I have to be willing to have people at the table who haven't learned yet how to refine their communication or their, their part in the conversation, but will help us to learn and see the reality from where they sit. And, you know, I'm, I say it all the time, the wonderful quote from Arundhati Roy, that there's no such thing as the voiceless, just the preferably unheard and the deliberately silenced. Yes. And we have to fight that. Um, and it's not just because it's my job. And uh, a final question. What is the spirit saying? Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And so my role is to make sure that the barriers that would prevent that from happening are removed. Yeah, I think the spirit for me is challenging me to create 
respect the spaces and to not be silent. Um, in in um, some of those forums where women rarely get a voice, to actually use the voice not just for myself but for um, other cultures and the Indigenous who, you know, are rarely there and rarely have space, much less the ability to speak. Mm. I think the spirit's challenging, um, uh, I think for me, I'll, I'll claim it for myself, the pride we have in our history of um, a perception of gender equality. There are plenty of churches that have come as far as us and moved beyond us. Uh, we need to lift our game in this regard, um, both theologically in the language we use. We need to we need to grow up a bit in our um, readiness to think through our theology and the implications of that a bit more. Um, and the the issue of um, gender equality throughout our organisation structurally in the language we use, in um, the systems that we use needs to change. It needs to um, be, um, become uh, more equitable and we need to acknowledge that it's not. So I think for me the Spirit's reminding me of that truth um, and I just need to listen <laughs> And perhaps it's Jesus saying shut up to me at the moment. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, everyone, f- for participating, um, for being vulnerable in this space and for, and for sharing um, your knowledge and also your experiences as well. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening in. Today's discussion was guided by faith-based facilitation. For more information, head over to salvationarmy.org forward slash FBF forward slash resources.